Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Uh, welcome. My name is Linda King. I'm from Edmond, Oklahoma. I'm a mother and a grandmother and a lifelong um, lover of scripture and Sunday school teacher and learner. Uh, for the last year, I have been a visiting assistant professor of religion out here at Pepperdine, and there's nothing more humbling or more instructive than uh, having to teach a text. And so I always fancied myself um, a student of the New Testament, but I got out here and they said, how about four sections of Old Testament? So, whoa. Uh, so I have actually taught in this classroom some, and uh, I just finished grading 160 essays. So that's the reason I'm a little bit haggard. Uh, but anyway, uh, it is a pleasure to be here and to share with you some of the things that I have learned about the women in David's life over the course of teaching this Old Testament in Context class to uh, 160 uh, freshmen, 18 and 19 year olds. It has raised some things that were never in the flannel graph stories <laughs> that I grew up on or in the VBS uh, uh, songs that I helped teach or even in the adult classes that, uh, and I've sat in some good uh, classes over the years but some of these characters either weren't mentioned or they just faded out of my consciousness. So I'd like to share some of the things I've learned and then leave some room for some discussion. Yes, please uh, shut that door and that'll help. Thank you much. Like every good class, though, we have to start with a little pop quiz. <clears throat> so uh, just blurt out, however, if you think you know the answer. How many wives did David have? Eight. Eight, yes. How many, well, and here's their names. They're named in scripture, and I'm a little insecure about my Hebrew pronunciation, so I'll probably anglicize every uh, pronunciation today. So it may be Michal or something like that, but I'm calling her Michael, okay. Um, how many concubines? Scripture doesn't say, it mentions at least 10. We know of 10, but there may have been more. Uh, Chronicles says that his son uh, Rehoboam, David's son Rehoboam, had uh, 60 concubines, 18 wives and 60 concubines. So we don't know how many David had, but at least 10. More, it says. <clears throat> how many sons? Twenty or plus. There are twenty that are named, and there's the son, the first son of David and Bathsheba, who died, and his name is not recorded for us. So there are twenty mentioned, some in groups, and then one in Second Chronicles is mentioned just almost incidentally in passing. Rehoboam married so and so, son, uh, daughter of so and so, who was the daughter? I mean, who was the son of David? And it was the only mention we've ever had of this person. So anyway, we know of 20 that have been uh, identified in scripture. How many daughters? There is one daughter named and others in the plural that are unnamed, which raises some interesting preliminary questions. <clears throat> What's with all these wives and concubines? Remember the warning that Moses gave to the people before they entered the promised land? You're going to get in there and you're going to want a king and you're going to insist on a king and the king needs to be, when you do it, the king needs to be an Israelite. But let me give you some warnings. The king is not supposed to have too many horses not too many wives or women, and not too much silver and gold. These will uh, lead you astray. And so, well, somehow that got, uh, that got ignored, it sounds like, or disregarded or minimized, not only in, with David, by David, but also by Solomon. So, what's with all the wives and concubines? They sure didn't have this scripture in the back of their consciousness. Well, what about the warning that uh, Samuel gave? 
you set a king over yourself, he's going to take your sons to do this, he's going to appropriate this for himself and this for himself, and he will take your daughters. And there'll be perfumers and bakers and so forth. Uh, A warning about he will take your daughters. What might we infer from this biblical listing of 19 or 20 sons' names and only one daughter's name? Sons counted for more. Mm-hmm. They were they were certainly more important to the uh, historians that wrote these accounts, and they just weren't focusing on the daughters, uh, except occasionally. So the sons were more important. They're in the spotlight, as were uh, most of the males throughout the Old Testament. <clears throat> So what we're going to do today is try to look at some of the people who were not in that spotlight on the stage. They were kind of in the shadow over ooh, I don't want to do that one. They were in the they were in the shadow, but that doesn't make them insignificant or less important. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But why? Why does it matter? Well, the first two are kind of uh, duh questions. Scripture suggests that parenting is important, shapes families, shapes Children, yes, we know that. Spouses can be influential. This is really where I want to focus on these last two items. Scripture suggests that wives and women have certain typical non-traditional, non-traditionally male ways of wielding influence, shaping children, family, kingdom. They use power differently, things that we might not even consider Uh, a use of power, but it is there. It was true historically, and it's true today. The uh, Old Testament also suggests that King David, his heart, his decisions, his children, his family, his whole kingdom, they were all influenced by and expressed as in, in his interaction with key women in his life. So that's why we're going to talk about this today. Why David? Well, this whole week's been about David, and I've loved it. I've just eaten it up. And so all of this has probably already come out in several of the lectures that you've heard this week, some of the classes. So much space devoted to David in the Old Testament, and his character looms so large in, uh, in the religion and history and literature of Israel, of Judaism, Christianity, even Islam. And we have this vast amount of information um, or characterization given to us in the Bible. A very candid picture. It's not entirely uh, uh, airbrushed or whitewashed. Uh, I'm using all these high-tech terms, but anyway, they didn't have Photoshop, but it has not been Photoshopped all that much in the Bible. And so we see David depicted as poet, musician, Passionate, loyal, brutal, opportunistic, gifted tactician, warrior, overindulgent, all of, all of the above. Greatest king in Israel's history. That was the glory days is how it's depicted. And as you know, he has been called a man after God's own heart. From the Psalms as well as other places in the narrative, we know that David was capable of repentance. Sometimes other people, including his own people in his kingdom, took the punishment for his transgressions, but he was capable of repentance. We know he had all these children. We know he had a a dysfunctional family. uh, We have uh, in the classroom today someone who just presented on David as father, and so uh, maybe you've studied or uh, examined some of the examples of what Dave, how David injured, neglected, and injured his uh, children and his family. <clears throat> so let's talk about some of the influential women in David's life, beginning with uh, Michael, pardon my anglicization of the names, uh, his daughter Michael, and scripture says she loves him. We don't get a lot about people's affections in the, in the Old Testament, but it says she loved him, even though it was an arranged marriage for political purposes. You recall she was the daughter of King Saul, and Saul was threatened, felt threatened by David, and so he decided he would do this marriage of uh, a politically expedient marriage. And so Michael was, in a sense, a political pawn, 
But she, it says she loved David, and so she was, it was okay with her. And she's presented, I, in my view in Scripture, she's presented as a sympathetic character that uh, we don't much like how David treated her. Um, she saved his life. When Saul was trying to kill him, she lied to her own father to save his life. You probably uh, are familiar with that story. And, but then later, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, it says he danced with all his might before the Ark. He stripped off and he was just uh, dancing with abandon. And it sounds like uh, Michael thought that was undignified and unbecoming. <laughs> And Bree's there, a wife who hasn't told her husband uh, that uh, uh, didn't become you, but you, you probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, it ha that kind of uh, rebuke happens from time to time in every marriage I've ever heard of, and yet, <laughs> or participated in, and, and when it, but he didn't take that criticism that well, and he says, you think I've disgraced myself dancing out with the common people like this, like one of the one of the peasants, one of the hoi polloi. Well, watch this. And so then uh, it says, basically, he cursed her, and she uh, never had any children. Um, sounds like he rejected uh, rejected her. <clears throat> she was later given to another. And so we want to love David, and yet. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't take criticism all that well, and her criticism was not the gentlest. It was, uh, it was sarcastic. Uh, but Bree's there in marriage without a teeny little thread of sarcasm, a little whiff of sarcasm in it from time to time. Uh, so anyhow, uh, I kind of, I kind of have pity for Michael, but she didn't handle King David all that well. There were are other wives mentioned in scripture. Some get more attention than others. An interesting one is Ahinoam. I don't think that's probably the right way to pronounce it, but Ahinoam was his first wife that we know about. And one of Saul's wives was named Ahinoam. We're not sure if it's the same one. But you will recall later when Nathan the prophet has to confront David about his behavior appropriating Bathsheba that... He, God says through Nathan the prophet, I've given you all this, I've given you all that, and if I've given you your master's wives, and if you wanted more, I would have given you that, but you have to take Uriah the Hittite's wife. And so this reference to I've given you your master's wives, uh, there's some speculation that that's maybe referring to Ahinoam, because Ahinoam uh, was the name of a wife of Saul. <clears throat> Okay, well, we're not going to concentrate on all those wives. And if you happen to be in the fine uh, keynote lecture last night, uh, then you have Bathsheba on your mind, no doubt, today. We had uh, a, uh, an excellent presentation about Bathsheba, and in our speaker's view last night, um, she was quite possibly the victim of um, royal rape might be too um, contemporary a term for it, but the uh, the right of royal prerogative, uh, the I believe I will, that uh, King David, as well as other kings, kings of England, kings everywhere uh, in history, there have been examples of kings, the king can do no wrong. That's where we get our idea of sovereign immunity uh, today. If the king did it, it must be right. Well, the King David did this to Bathsheba, with Bathsheba, therefore it must be right. Well, no, not according to, uh, to the word of God through the prophet Nathan. However, the text doesn't give us Bathsheba's point of view. She doesn't get a voice in the text. And so we don't know her attitude or her heart, her feelings about it. It does say she grieved her husband, Uriah the Hittite, whom David had killed. So uh, it wasn't that she despised him. She, uh, she no, no doubt had a complex mix or stew of feelings about it. But we just have to speculate because it's not given to us in Scripture. And that in itself is telling. 
why do we why do we not get to hear? Well, I think she's just uh, leaves us with a picture of Bathsheba as uh, a sexual pawn in a larger narrative. But there are all these gaps in there, and we tend to fill them in. We ab- we abhor gaps too, and so we fill them in from our own ideas, our preconceptions, art. Even if you're not an art lover, no doubt you have seen a lot of the Renaissance art. And I had to look long and hard to find some art that wouldn't be uh, X-rated, actually. (laughs) Uh, All those Renaissance artists love depicting Bathsheba, uh, looking in her mirror and, uh, you know, painting and powdering and puffing and plumping and whatever before she's going to go uh, her presentation to the king. And so generally they make her out as a, seduct- a seductress. Uh, and they shade how we read the text. There have been a number of movies about King David, David and Bathsheba. Uh, this famous one with uh, Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. You know, she's a tough, she's a tough cookie. And she, uh, David's looking down at her in her toilette and uh, in, in her bath across the way. And she's just reveling in it with her helper, like everybody needs help taking a bath, you know. But anyway, she's, uh, <clears throat> um, it's sort of like, yeah. And this uh, mischaracterization of the and of this uh, artist right here, this is a more contemporary one. It's the only one that didn't have full frontal nudity for Bathsheba. But, so we get only her backside, but it depicts her on the roof. Where does this, who was on the roof in the, in the biblical text? David was on the roof. Bathsheba wasn't on the roof. Didn't say she was on the roof. Uh, but the artist's rendering is she's up there going, well, get a load of this. And, uh, and with her bathing helper. Maybe she did have a bathing helper. Who knows? We don't get so much this view of Bathsheba mourning her murdered husband and then having to go... Uh, sleep with Mary, his murderer. <clears throat> so we are influenced uh, about Bathsheba with the art, the movies, the stories that we've heard. It's all layered on top of that, and it is so eye-opening to go back and just read what is there in the bare text and say, ooh, how much have I filled in here? Well, other significant women in David's life, and I'm kind of going from the most prominent on down. Abigail's story, you probably know, and I really dig Abigail. She gets a whole chapter to herself. That's rare in the Old Testament in First Samuel 25. Plus, it recounts that she was married to Nabal, whose name means fool. And so, you know, a lot of women can relate. Uh, well, am I wrong? I mean, <laughs> there are foolish women too, but I'm just saying uh, it, is, it is a moment of candor uh, that the Deuteronomistic historians put this in there. <clears throat> um, and she's depicted as insightful. You, I'm, I expect you know the story, but her husband refused hospitality to David and his men. Now, there is an argument that David was really being uh, an outlaw and his men were a band of outlaws running a protection racket for the, for the sheep of uh, Nabal and came to take his payment in kind. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> whatever the case, Nabal was not wise. And... Uh, and it infuriated David, and David was going to erase the, eradicate the whole Nabal Holdings estate, household, whatever. Abigail got wind of it, and so she ran out and she marshaled all the household assets and loaded up the camels and perhaps the donkeys. I don't recall if there were donkeys in the story, but loaded up the camels and and went out to David before he came with slaughter on his mind and she bowed down before him and she praised him and she persuaded him uh, you don't want you don't want the blood of this fool on your hands when you come into your own and <clears throat> anyway she used her soft power skills to avert this tragedy she flattered him 
She reasoned with him. She was humble. Uh, she was organized and managerial. She's, she, she had it go, going on. And so I've always loved the story of uh, Abigail. One thing I didn't know until I taught it again this semester was at the very end of her encounter with David, uh, when she's uh, trying to head off war, uh, she says, and when you come into your own, don't forget about me. She says, remember me. And her husband hadn't been killed yet. She says, you remember me when you come into your own. So that's why I say perhaps something more. It does say she was beautiful, so maybe that remember me was like, ah, remember me. Don't <laughs> we, we don't know for sure. Okay, well, that's a, that's a story that ended up happily, and, and after Nabal was uh, providentially uh, written out of the script, <clears throat> then uh, Tam uh, Abigail marries David. Uh, Tamar, though, is not a happy story. Uh, Tamara is David's daughter, the one who's named, and she is <coughs> raped by her uh, half-brother Amnon, who was the son of that Ahinoam, and then he despised her. He'd been so besotted with her, and then he despised her after the rape and cast her out, and she tore off her, it said the king's virgin daughters wore robes, long robes with long sleeves. She had to rip off her... Uh, rip her robes and be cast off and go live with her brother Absalom um, in desolation. She became a desolate woman. And it says, David was angry with Amnon, but he didn't do anything. So, ugh, because he loved his son Amnon. Well, what heartbreak in this story. We never actually have an account of Tamar going and, and talking to her father David about uh, her plight or his response other than anger but he certainly uh, displays from from my reading of it a, a callous disregard for his daughter in contrast to the solicitous concern he had for a number of his sons uh, risking his whole army, risking the well-being of the kingdom, risking everything for various sons, not his daughter. I don't know if she had been able to talk to him, if, it, if she did speak with him, if it might have been a different outcome. Just don't know. But this led to the familial collapse and, and the bloodshed that never really left the Davidic dynasty. There's some artist's rendition of Abigail bearing down before King David. I don't think any either of them looked anything like that, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, you can see all the abundant gifts she brought with him. So gifts are symbolic. Of course, he and his men were hungry anyhow, so all those dates and raisins and all that kind of good stuff, uh, fruit, and, uh, were no doubt uh, welcome, but it was also thoughtful and meaningful and persuasive. Artists, I had to look hard for a picture of the rape of Tamar. There are many of them out there, but again, I didn't want to do something um, that would be so explicit this early in the morning, but you get the, <laughs> but you get the idea. <clears throat> Other significant women in David's life. The wise woman of Tekoa. Tekoa is a village I've read, is a village, was a village not far from uh, Bethlehem. Uh, I've seen a picture of it today. I think it's really just kind of a tell, a mound where a village once was. But in 2 Samuel 14, we have an account of a woman who was sent, actually by um, Joab, to David. <coughs> to participate in a little drama, a little, um, well, a little play acting, uh, or if you're not as gentle, a big fat lie. But uh, what she did was, <clears throat> uh, day after uh, David's uh, Absalom had uh, killed Amnon in vengeance for Tamara, then Absalom had had to leave and was banished and so David was um, estranged from this son, and uh, Joab sent, uh, went to a wise woman 
Um, maybe she was a seer, maybe she was just an old elder of the town, we don't know, but uh, she was known for her wisdom and he said, uh, I want you to do something, I want you to put on, pretend like you're in mourning, so get in this costume and go into David and ask for a favor, ask for some uh, advice, some relief. And so she goes in and she presents, uh, she tells a tale, and she says, I have two sons and they were out in the field and one of them killed the other and now uh, everybody's mad at me because they think I should, um, uh, they, they think my other son should be killed because of that and I just want my line to, you know, my family's line to continue. I want, I just want to save my son who's left. She tells, and what, so what should I do? And so, uh, what she is doing is, this is called a mashal, and it is like a parable in many ways. It is, <clears throat> it's a story that then is not meant to be understood in its own sense, but has an application. It's a, it's a parable. Uh, many parables have to do with nature things and, and so forth, but this is, this is close to what we would think of as a parable. And it uses some typical themes. One is the theme of sibling rivalry, which kind of takes us back to Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, some of that. Uh, also a common theme or, or uh, trope in the Old Testament would be woman with a cause who rises to the occasion. <clears throat> so we, we have that in there too. She's sort, of, she's sort of that. So she comes to David and says, what should I do? And he says, oh, I'll, I'll take care of it. Uh, your son will be protected and you can be, uh, you can be reconciled with him and he shall live. And, and she confronts David, sort of in an echo of how Nathan confronted David and basically says, uh, thou art the man, and you are doing this with your own sons because one killed another, and now you've banished the one who's the killer, and you're doing this, you're doing this very same thing. Whoa, that was brave. And so she confronted him through this story, and she didn't leave that application hanging. She said, this is you. She held up a mirror to him. And as a result, Absalom was brought back, not really into the king's favor, but he got to, he got to come back to his house. <clears throat> uh, so think about what techniques she used there. Uh, only found one ancient picture of it, uh, representation of it, and there again, she is humbled. This idea of someone being able to come and sort of have their day, maybe not small claims court, but they get to come and have their uh, petition heard by the sovereign himself uh, still exists in some parts of the world. We were in Jordan a few years ago and our guide told us that uh, there is a certain time, I don't know if it's weekly, monthly, but there's a, a time when the king is in session and you can come and, and make your plea directly to the king. And so that's what this wise woman did tell a lie, put on a little play, a story, whatever. Uh, Joab was coaching her, but she did that script well, and she did it courageously to say, that's you. He could have said, that was you. <laughs> Other significant women in David's life, we know that he had at least 10 concubines, and when uh, Absalom was trying to usurp the throne, David left Jerusalem and he left 10 of his concubines in charge of the palace when he left. And so Absalom comes into town, into Jerusalem, and on the um, advice of Ahithophel and other uh, advisors, he decides the final act of contempt and odium uh, is to, in repudiation of his father and his father's rule is to go in and sleep with, have sex with, his father's concubines. And so he does it in sight of the whole town, all of Jerusalem, on the palace rooftop. So uh, that's, that is unambiguous. Uh, and we don't get one word about the women's feelings about being serial victims of Absalom. 
but we can we pause, we can imagine it a little bit. <clears throat> when David returned and found out what had happened, he he didn't ever uh, have sex with those women again, but he did care for them. It says um, in scripture that he left them to, he cared for them and he left them to live as widows until the time of their death, that they were shut up, they were confined. Okay, what about Rizpah? Rizpah, that's not somebody, I don't believe there is a risen Rizpah character on flannel graph. I never, I never heard of Rizpah until I ended up uh, uh, reading again this semester. <clears throat> Rizpah was a concubine of Saul's and Second <clears throat> uh, Samuel uh, tells about how after David took the throne he wanted to uh, it was typical to kill off your predecessor's uh, ostensible uh, assistants, claimants to the throne, and so forth. And so Second Samuel tells about how David was killing off the um, sons of Saul, uh, ostensibly because of an offense they had done to the Gibeonites, but possibly as a, following the tradition of kill off all your predecessors and any claimants and any who might be loyal to your predecessor. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, David ordered that seven of Saul's sons be impaled. Impaled. Um, and so it was. David seldom did the bloodshed himself. You know, he had minions. He had people. And so uh, he or he said, let this happen. So it happened. And seven of Saul's sons were impaled, and two of them were um, Rizpah's sons by Saul. They were impaled, and they were left out for the animals and the vultures and all of that. Rizpah made this brave, quiet statement, the defiant act, she, it's, it says she went out there, laid down sackcloth, and stayed by those bodies day and night from the barley harvest into the rainy season, and I don't know how long that was, but some, a change of season. She stayed out there, and she would shoo away the birds by day and the wild animals at night, and uh, she used no violence no words, she just did this act. And of course it was very important in that culture, in many cultures, that people get a decent burial. And so when David heard, the, uh, when it was reported to him what Rizpah was doing, it motivated him. And so he went and had uh, Saul and Jonathan's body uh, brought back and, and combined them with taking these bodies down where, from where they'd been impaled and gave them all uh, a decent burial. So her quiet act of grisly defiance moved, the, moved a king to act. I didn't find any pictures. As much as the artists like to draw uh, nudies at their, you know, whatever, they don't really like to draw people in being impaled. And so it shows that they were crucified here. But this was the only picture, uh, artistic rendition I could get of Rizpah shooing away the vultures. And her, her uh, blanket is down there on the ground. <clears throat> okay, uh, other significant women in David's life? I bet you have not, if you're like me at all, had not really heard about the woman from Abel of Beth Maaka, or ever how you say that. Uh, <clears throat> there was a time when uh, David's army was pursuing one of his enemies and who fled to this town. And they, so David and his army uh, were going, they built a siege ramp, they were going to lay siege to this town and wipe it out. And this town was known for. Uh, there's just a little reference. This town is known for either its 
uh, adjudication, maybe it was local disputes could get settled, we're not quite sure, but, or for the wise people in it. Because there was a saying that said, if you want an answer, go to Abel Beth Baaka. And so anyway, uh, the town was about to be obliterated because of the uh, vengeance being sought by David. And so this wise woman, she's described as a, a wise woman from the town, she goes up on the ramparts, hollers down and says, I want, I want to talk to your leader. I want to. And so she does, and uh, she says, what's going on here? What's, and they say, we want, we've chased this guy here, and we want him uh, because he's insulted the king. He's, and so she says, Hold on, you'll have his head. <laughs> she goes back into town, and the next thing we know, I mean, it sounds—I mean, it, not to be crass, but it sounds like something out of Monty Python. A head comes over the city walls, and his head is thrown down there, and she saved the whole city. So I doubt she beheaded him. She probably went into town, and people listened to her, and and she did a harsh thing but she got the town to offer this man up to those who were seeking vengeance and save the whole town. And she's characterized as a wise woman. Uh, <clears throat> I have mentioned there Saul's harem. We don't know how many were, uh, we really don't know about Saul's harem, except we know that this prophet, this remark from a prophet says, um, I have given you your master's wives, and so we don't know who all that might be. Okay, last but not least is Abishag. What an unfortunate name. That's probably not how you say it in Hebrew. But anyway, in the book of First Kings, Abishag is the beautiful virgin who was chosen to go and uh, get in bed with old King David in his old age, and it says he couldn't get warm. Um, and so she was, uh, there was a big search, beauty pageant, whatever, a search throughout the kingdom, and she was brought in. Now, there are several interpretations of this story, because it says he did not have sex with her. Um, so some people say, well, he was just old and cold, and he needed a warm body, he needed a snuggle partner. Maybe so. <laughs> um, others say, no, he was righteous and abstinent. He wasn't impotent. He was just being righteous because he learned his lesson with Bathsheba. So, um, so he was just being, no ma'am, thank you. But uh, <clears throat> a third interpretation is that this reflects a virility test. And in recent years, uh, scholars have identified a couple of um, comparable or similar stories where uh, bringing in a, a young virgin, a beautiful young virgin to a king, uh, to a ruler, either rejuvenated them or it was a virility test. And if they couldn't, well, you get the picture. If they couldn't, then, uh, then that meant they were not fit to rule. And so that was justification for uh, it's time to retire them, it's time to oust them, it's time to uh, unseat them as ruler. So uh, this, was, this was the sociological equivalent of the little blue pill, I guess. In any case, there was one argument is that this was a virility test to see if old King David was still fit to rule. <clears throat> And uh, the, a fourth argument is that his unresponsiveness to this beautiful young virgin in bed with him means that he's just no longer the powerful ruler that he once was. And so he needs rejuvenating. This will give him a new lease on life. We don't know. We don't know. But these are four different interpretations of the Abishag episode. Now, uh, a little footnote to that is after David's death, Adonijah, uh, one of the other sons of David, uh, went to Bathsheba to ask on his behalf 
of King Solomon uh, for Abishag. He wanted Abishag. And for that, he got killed. It was considered a real insult. Who was David's mother? Big mystery. The Bible doesn't name her, but she was alive during David's adulthood. Uh, in 1 Samuel 22, it talks about David looking for uh, a safe place to shelter his parents. There is Jewish and uh, legend and oral tradition that gives her this name. I have no clue how you say it, Nitzavit or something like that, but we don't really know. Um, we can wonder and speculate about her influence on him. We don't know much about Jesse's influence on him. But, you know, he's, David is the son of Jesse. Well, what about his mama? But we don't, we don't really have any idea about that, except that in Psalm 86, David is, uh, is making a plea to Yahweh, and he asks for mercy, and, uh, and on the son of God's servant, and the NIV says, my mother, your servant, a number of, some of the translations say that. Some say, uh, my, I'm the son of your handmaid. So it sounds like uh, David is connecting his own faith with that of his mother. Well, some preliminary questions, conclusions, and this is where uh, I hope you will uh, speak up. The Bible describes so many significant encounters between David and women, more than anybody else, even Jesus. Why might that be? And why do these historians, who are mainly looking at the men and their military achievements and their uh, outsized um, acts of heroism or um, lack of virtue, uh, why include all these David and women stories? I don't have an answer to that, but it's, I find it interesting. I wonder if it was intentional, if somebody said, well, let's, I'm going to make my outline for this Deuteronomistic history and be sure, and you know, there's a bunch of these women here. Um, is there a view of women reflected in these stories? And if so, is it God's view? Is it the historian's view? Is it David's view? Is it a single view? Is it a normative view that we should share that, that is normative or binding or instructive for us? And is that view part of an intent or is it something that has just bled through the lines of the narrative? These are the kind of questions um, modern interpreter or contemporary interpreters uh, are thinking about points of view and I'd be interested if anyone in here has an idea about that. Hold that thought in mind. You can you can jump in here anytime that you like. I'll be this is the discussion part. All right. What can we notice about the way these women interacted with David? Influenced him. Well, even though Michael was a political match she did love him, but then when she treated him with sarcasm and scorn, she was out of there. She was cursed, rejected, and not only that, he came back and ruined her subsequent marriage to Paul Teal. Caused a lot of pain and heartache, and so it says she came <coughs> to despise him. So that was not the way to handle King David. In contrast, we have Abigail who by all accounts, was beautiful, intelligent, shrewd, wealthy, courageous. I mean, this woman didn't have any defects. She used all her attributes and her soft skills to persuade David to avert disaster and to remember her later in marriage. Let me just, just a thought on the yes. previous slide. Um, you know, David's not the only one. You mentioned that there are many times where much more is told about him, mm -hmm. but most of these stories about him and women are found in other people's lives as well. When Jacob's family was dysfunctional, mm -hmm. you know, there, there was a lot of other uh, stories about 
just treating women poorly, which might have been then fostered in that patriarchal culture in the Old Testament. So, and I think probably everybody in the room is almost kind of despised the, David's treatment of women, but we may not have thought that if we lived in AD 1000 or something. In contrast to the way Jesus treated women, which was so drastically different in, in his culture. And I think that gives us, I think it was probably there, it might, my view is it was normative to some extent in the Old Testament because that's just the way mankind treated women. Whereas we see the stark contrast to the way Jesus treated women to prove a point that you know, not only should you treat them like Christ did, but you should not treat them like they were treated in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Well, you do make a good point that there's some humility is required here because we shouldn't anachronistically impose contemporary values automatically on their and make moral judgments based on what they were doing. On the other hand, as Sarah Barton pointed out last night, even back then, Nathan, the prophet, right. condemned this be right. that behavior. Right. Not everything David did, but that, right. that behavior. And in fact, David wasn't allowed to build the, the temple because of all the bloodshed. You know, he had blood on his hands. Right. Uh, so, uh, and laying people out and measuring them with a cord and killing this many, you know. So, so we, we should be cautious about him. But not, not just caution. I'm, I'm not justifying anything David did. Uh -huh. It's just the way we live without Christ in our life. Mm -hmm. And that that is so, that's, that example shows us what, what we can do, what men can do without Jesus in our life. Mm -hmm. And it, it became so obscene that, you know, we were embarrassed by the, what mm -hmm. David did. Mm -hmm. In contrast to what lessons we learned from Jesus, who really showed that is, that, that is so off the chart. I mean, this is so off the chart the way mm -hmm. Christ would treat somebody, mm -hmm. uh, and that contrast is so is meant to be stark because mm -hmm. we needed that stark contrast. Thank you. Yes, Holly. Have you read any literature that uh, paints Abigail uh, more negatively? I became familiar about 25 years ago with someone talking about her as a um, manipulative and interfering wife, <laughs> <laughs> which essentially got her husband killed eventually anyway. Although I think that's going to happen. But have you read any of that? I don't think that's the Deuteronomist's view of it, but that that would I would call that a minority view. What about you, Tim? What would no, you I would agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of like it, saying that it, it reminds me, we have people, as some have mentioned, you'll find a biography of David, and, and he's a saint. And I love Randy Harris's you know, mm -hmm. definition of that. Someone whose life needs to be investigated more. <laughs> but, but you know, and, and I think that's kind of where a lot of us start is we think everything David does must be okay except for this one little thing. <laughs> but then there's other people that want to write about him as a brigand, a bandit. You know, everything he does is evil. We can find an ulterior motive, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's what's going on here. Is I, I think you're right. I think the historian is painting Abigail as this uh, model female mm -hmm. doing what she has to do and what's best to do. Mm -hmm. and, and to try to make it manipulative, I think, is reading into the text. I hadn't run across that except in that one setting, and I just, it was such an outlier. I wondered if others saw it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes? So I was talking with my boss yesterday, and um, we were talking about how our corporate board has only two women. Most of them were men, and most decisions, we all work for men, most is on the banker, most decisions are made by men. And we were the two that in our company that are very strategic, very use our soft skills all the time, where I won't consider as manipulative, but we do a lot of things that cause changes in our company, but the changes are announced by the men and are done by the men, but we have significant influence in our culture of, the, of our organization and everything. It's obvious that without all these women, David's cause of actions would have been different. So to me, without overanalyzing the theology mm -hmm. and historical, mm -hmm. all that, it's just obvious that these women have altered 
his life had he not been so involved with them. That's why they're you know in mm -hmm. all these stories. Thank you. That's a great segue to the uh, <clears throat> my my next little point here is. Um, Bathsheba uh, started out possibly as, um, it sounds to me like, as a victim, but uh, maybe not. Maybe she aspired to be chosen as the Queen of the May, but nevertheless, um, she ended up working her way through as David's companion throughout life. It sounds like she was the favorite wife, kingmaker, orchestrated palace intrigue to get her son Solomon on the throne and being the queen mother. Um, and I just mentioned there that I think her story is sort of a Rorschach test. It's like this pool of water, this well we look into and we kind of see our own reflection or the reflection of our culture or, or whatever. The, um, so she's still a mystery to me. Uh, but look at the other things that the women used. The wise woman of Tekoa used storytelling, costuming, play acting out and out lie if you want to, but she was reading the, the Joab script. Um, the wise woman of Beth Ma'aka showed courage, uh, pragmatism, and took a harsh act. She wasn't just passive. She went, turned around, held the siege at bay, turned around and went and acted decisively and saved her city from David's wrath. And then Rizpah used a silent behavioral uh, rebuke or statement or protest. I have a sister-in-law, this is just a little side thing, I have a sister-in-law who, uh, is, it's not kind to call her a professional protester, but, but she has been, in, she's been arrested many times and uh, she will just go down and uh, she camped out outside um, the uh, George Bush's house down in Texas, with Crawford or whatever, uh, protesting the war at some point. She just, she never says a word. She weighs about 90 pounds. Maybe that's why I can, uh, I'm envious of her. But anyway, she, um, she just silently goes and stands. She's been arrested in Washington, D.C. in the, in the uh, House of Representatives for letting down a stop the war flag during whatever. And so uh, she had to go uh, do community service in D.C. I don't think she, I don't know that she changed one single thing, but she honored her conscience and maybe she did, that actions did have a cumulative uh, effect. But in any case, she's, she takes the nonviolent route and she doesn't usually utter a word, just her presence makes a statement. And that's what Rizpa did. You know, she was there doing something I don't think I could have done, beating off the vultures by day and the wild animals by night to get your son a proper burial, but uh, she did without a word. And as soon as David heard about that, he acted. I don't know if he was shamed, uh, if he was touched, moved in uh, some sympathetic way, but in any case, her quiet action and protest motivated him to action. Well, so there are a lot of questions we don't know, but here's some, some of things I feel certain about. First is that David is in the spotlight, and so uh, the women in his life are part of his story, but they are also part of history. They're part of the history of God's people uh, as recounted in the Old Testament. And so for that, they warrant our attention, not just because uh, somebody's looking for a new little odd factoid to talk about or because, uh, um, you know, up the women and feminism or any such thing like that. They're in the story and they're, they're arguably for a purpose. There's something that we can learn and some things we can attend to and wonder about and even within the strictures of their time and place and culture, these women found ways to exert profound influence on David. And so they offer us examples of how women ever have and continue to shape the world. There's power, the kind that comes with shouts and swords, and there's power, the kind that comes with edicts and executions, and then there's soft power that's 
can be shrewd and skilled, persistent, courageous, and strong. So what my uh, recent review of these women of the Old Testament has left me with is a sense of gratitude. So I would say, thank you, Grandmother Abigail, and thank you, Aunt Rispa. We'll talk about you forever. You helped shape the world, and so we're going to tell your stories. Uh, comments? Contest? You want to dispute? I would like to yeah. connect your presentation with what Rabbi Wolfie said, that culture has changed radically in so many ways, language practices from that world BC to ours, but what hasn't changed is human nature, and we do see the mirror of characters and events and our own personality in these stories if we look closely. It seems to me really demonstrated that well. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. Well, human nature, that we think this happened maybe a thousand years BCE, and now we're 2,000 years after that. I'm, uh, in the common era and so 3,000 years and yet you can still get enough out of these stories to go ooh yes. that's me or that's somebody I know or I wish I wish I were her when our children were little we took them to see this movie and uh, Eric maybe you remember it it had some um, it was about some medieval hero, and he came riding in on a big steed, and he had he was in um, he, he was in mail, chain mail, and black and uh, leather, and uh, it was all that. And um, uh, it was summer hawk. Uh, uh, what hawk? Uh, what was the name of that movie? Anyway, um, he uh, he came in, and our eight-year-old son, who's now <clears throat> turned. 50, he's 49. Our eight-year-old son at that time blurted out from the audience, oh, I'm him. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you talk about role modeling. And so uh, I think a story works well. These stories preserved from us from the, uh, from the Old Testament work well when we can look at them and go, whoa, I, I'm her, or mm, I'm her, or I'm him. And so that's, that's the power, even all these millennia later in the stories. Any other comments, anybody? Well, I think we can use um, all these women's virtues and otherwise in our daily lives, dealing with either bosses or men or even our women friends. We have to know when to use a little power and use a little soft touch and mm -hmm. sort of be defiant and sort of be brave and... I mean, it's all, in, like you said, in human nature. Mm -hmm. Or, well, I should say, hopefully it's within sort of Christ's nature of how we do that now. And in, in our culture of today is how we speak softly or we carry these things. Well, you do raise the important question of how much is human nature about soft skills versus sword and weaponry and and how much is uh, culture fostered and that's a hard question so uh, are women ever and remain manipulative and is that a bad thing to what's the difference between manipulation and influence yes. and so um, yeah, I do you, influence everyone else in the Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, whatever you have in your hand, uh, that's what you use. Whatever you, whatever assets you have. And so some of these women use their beauty, and um, some of them use their insight and their noticing. Women are ever noticers. You know, they notice, and so they know how to work around power and and in that context. And so, is it something that's a function of? Um, uh, estrogen, or is it something that we've learned over the millennia? I don't know, and who who does know? But there is a way of using these soft skills, and so maybe uh, we ought to give a little more attention to the lives that were saved. There's so many accounts of they slaughtered this many, and this many were killed, and this many were killed. What about all the ones that were saved by a soft word or friendly persuasion? And the movie is Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk, that's oh. it. Yes, yes, sir. This, this might be a, a tangent, but so we look back at the last 3,000 years or 4,000 years where the world was 
predominantly constructed by men and mm -hmm. in terms of culture. What if we, what if we saw the next 4,000 years where women took control? And, you know, would it look similar to this in a different, in a, you know, a different, uh, I guess in a different way, would the world be corrupted or not mm -hmm. based on what we learned without God in the picture, of mm -hmm. course. But if we put God as a consistent thing across the 8,000 year period, it might look different. So, I don't know, I, I'm, it's one of those things that goes in my mind. You know, what happens in the next 3,000 years, 4,000 years, where the world change, women starts to construct the culture of the world, mm -hmm. would, would power corrupt them too? Well, our speaker last night, Sarah Barton, suggested that the potential for, for abuse of power is, is in our mm -hmm. DNA, at least since Eden, and that mm -hmm. we are, anybody with excess power, unchecked power, is likely yeah. to, it will be tempted to abuse it. But then, who knows, and look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate your Thank participation. You.